Log Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a book, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind, in your heart. Gain new knowledge, get a fresh new start. They never will bring you there Good morning, everyone. This is Fran Lewis. This is MJ Network, MJ and Mary of my sister, Marsha Joyce. And we have the author of Dead in the Water. And for those of you like myself that love whales, sharks, and sea life, you got to read this book. It's so good. Good morning, Jeanette. How are you? And welcome to MJ Network. Good morning, Fran. And thanks so much for having me on the show. And yes, I love all marine life as well. Well, I will be posting you five stars later, <laughs> as, <laughs> as soon as my computer cooperates. I, you know, I, I realize I, I sent you a million questions. That just proves I like the book. No, serious. <laughs> Uh, I did go overboard because I couldn't. I said, well, whatever you don't want to answer, if I, you know, if it's too much of a spoiler, just let me know. But can you tell people a little bit of summary of the book and tell us about Sydney? I like Sydney. Sure, sure. So this is the eighth book in the um, Provincetown, the Sydney Riley Provincetown Mystery Series, um, which all take place in Provincetown, which is a small town on the tip of Cape Cod, and. I had wanted, I, I often have wanted, well, I almost always, to be honest, like to place my books in real places. I think it's really kind of fun for people who live in the area to recognize it and for people who haven't been there to want to go there. And Provincetown is, frankly, um, a tourist town, so we do like to have people come here. So we also have this influx of people in and out all summer which means that you've got a lot more opportunities for conflict and, and, and for relationships and for all sorts of things. So when I decided to um, make, a, make a series that took place here in Provincetown, which is also where I live, by the way, um, I thought, all right, so what kind of profession can I give to my protagonist? Because she mm-hmm. has, you know, if it's a mystery series, she has to have some flexibility in terms of time. She can't be working a nine-to-five job because that doesn't really allow you much time for amateur sleuthing. Um, so I made her a wedding planner um, because although that can be an intense job, it's also a very flexible one. So it gave her the opportunity to um, have days off, to, to be able to run off at a moment's notice and do something else. Um, so that's that's how Sydney Riley came about. I like Sydney Riley. She's really cool. So, what kind of who is Kai, and explain what kind of toys involve whales at the center? 
That I, you know what? It's too bad I never knew about stuff like that. I love stuff like that. I, I don't particularly like boats because I get seasick. But to go to a, <laughs> uh, an aquarium or to go inside, um, I think my my niece went on um, for her birthday when she turned 21. Or oh, swam with the sharks because she's as wacky as her aunt. And she said that was a lot of fun. Which was scary though. So, what kind of tours does she do, and why do people go on them, and what do they see? So, um, actually, one of the things I, I do mention in the book that's true, I always try to give some sort of truth in the background to my stories. And whale watching as an activity on the East Coast was started here in Provincetown by the Avalar family. Um, and for a long time, they continued to, to run um, the whale watching boats that go out during the season and stay at a, at a safe distance, obviously, from whales. But um, spring, fall, and throughout the summer, we have right whales here. We have humpback whales here. We have minke whales nice. here. Um, we, and, and more and more these days, uh, obviously, we also have great white sharks because they're following the sea lions. Um, or the seals, I should say. So, so we've got this plethora of marine life out there and obviously want to take advantage of that. So um, for a long time, the Avalar family ran what's called the Dolphin Fleet, which is the major whale-watching outfit in town. We've had a couple of others that have come and go, but really the Dolphin Fleet um, with, I believe, now eight whale-watching boats um, is where people go. And it's a fantastic experience. You have a naturalist mm. on board. Um, and in, in, in this case, and the, the, the naturalist that I talk about in this book, the fellow called Kai, um, he works for the Center for Coastal Studies, which is also right here in Provincetown, um, and does a lot of work on a lot of levels um, with whale detanglement from fishing gear, um, with studying marine life of all kinds, and with educating the public. So it's a fantastic resource we have here. And in fact, we're talking next year about perhaps adding, I think the town is, has voted on it, adding um, a, a chapter, I guess, I'm not sure, an office of the um, Great White Shark Conservancy um, organization here. So we'll have a visitor center that will talk all about the uh, marine life on Stellwagen Bank, which is right off of the coast here, which is a, a place that all sorts of marine life, but especially whales, come to feed. And um, it will be really a, a way of introducing people who don't know as much about marine life as those of us who live here, but also um, to, to really remind all of us about how important conservancy is and how important yeah. all of these animals are to our lives. No, I agree with you. I know something is too bad that kids can go on trips there too. That would be fantastic for schools for education. Because stuff like that exactly. is like more hands-on, yeah. I mean, I took my I took my classes to the aquarium and stuff, and they went to the museums, but they were they loved everything. They loved everything, ate up everything. And I taught tough sixth graders, and they were really fantastic. As a matter of fact, they yeah. were so good that we went to the United Nations just to, you know, take a tour, and they invited them into the General Assembly meeting. That That's never happened, oh they said. Goodness. 
Yeah, they were really, they were, and they were allowed to ask questions. I go like, oh my god, it was cool. So now, her mother reminds me of my mother at times. Why was her mother so critical of her, and what is the problem with her? What did she want Sydney to do? My mother was a perfectionist, and you know, if you didn't do it her way, you got the Ruthie look. So I can understand how what poor Sydney went through. <laughs> no, seriously. So, um, <laughs> it sounds like you can. One of the joys and one of the great things about writing a series that involves a lot of the same characters is that you get to show them growing and changing just as we all do through life. They encounter problems and challenges and joys, and they grow from them. So the first book in this series, um, I was honestly just trying to um, give Sydney some people in her life. I knew it was going to be a series, so I wanted to start to populate it. And since a lot of her interactions with folks were very positive, I thought, all right, I need to give her a little conflict. And being a daughter myself, (laughs) I think a lot of mothers and daughters have some inbuilt conflict. So I thought, what could the conflict be? I had already mentioned in this this first book that um, that she had come to Provincetown after being divorced. So I thought, okay, her mother wants her to get married again. And so throughout many of the books, she's had these long conversations with her mother about her mother wanting her to get married and her saying, I don't particularly want to get married again. And sometimes they're sharper conversations than others. Um, In one of the books, notably, she actually invited her parents to come here for um, Christmas time for the holiday season. And, um, and, And in some ways, I think that that advanced their relationship even more so that it became multidimensional instead of just, oh, the daughter's having conflict with the mother, the mother's having conflict with the daughter. Um, But what I did set up was, as one does, you know, as you're writing a book, you want to give each character their own voice and their own expressions. There are expressions that each of us use every day just because they're part of our vocabulary and the way we look at the world. So I had set up her mother to be saying things like, don't take a tone with me, um, which may be familiar to some daughters out there. And I continued that here. However, in this book in particular, um, I wanted to reveal um, some of the conflicts in the family that came out of something that was very different from just a mother-daughter conflict, and that was that there had been another daughter and that daughter had died. Um, so, So I wanted to give the mother that kind of humanity so that you can see that, okay, Obviously, she's pushing a lot onto Sydney because Sydney's her remaining child. And, um, and I think that that humanizes her and that will enable me in the next few books in this series to show a much closer relationship between um, Sydney and her parents. That is good. My dad was my, was my savior. He was the best. Yeah. My mom was, a, she was very smart. She was a perfectionist. So if you didn't do it her way, you got to do it over her way, which is okay because I think I became like that now. <laughs> um, tell us about Glenn and why Sydney feels close to him. And what happened, who is Vincent Almada, 
and uh, was kidnapped, and why did they involve Glenn? Okay, so um, the the principal I, I, idea around the, the the crime, if you will, in this mystery, um, is that this person, Vincent Almada, has been kidnapped. Vincent Almada, um, you'll recall that I mentioned to you that the Avalar family, um, in real life and in my book, were the original owners of the Dolphin Fleet. Um, then I, I hypothesized, you know, I fictionalized it to the extent of saying that this cousin, who is a fictitious person, but this cousin of the Avalar family, um, Vincent um, was bought the Dolphin Fleet and the whole whale watch enterprise from that family. And this is huge enterprise. As I said, I, I, I believe they're up to eight, eight boats. They've got um, trips going out every day for months. It's really a, a, a large enterprise. So it made sense that someone who had that kind of control and that kind of resources could potentially be kidnapped. Um, and I didn't want to do a kidnapping because I hadn't done one in previous books. And, and as you probably know, and as your listeners probably know, when you're writing a series, you don't want the same kind of murder to take place in every single one of them. You want to have variety. You want to be able to um, show different kinds of, of situations, you know, for, for your protagonist and other characters to get into. So I had already decided I really wanted to do a kidnapping in this book. So Vincent Almada is kidnapped. Um, we don't know yet why, but we can pretty much presume that he's been kidnapped because he's sitting on a fair amount of resources because he owns the Dolphin Fleet. Now, back up a little bit. Glenn is the owner of the of the inn where Sydney is the um, wedding planner. So she and Glenn have a certain closeness already. They have even more of a closeness because in a previous book, in fact, in the first book in the series, um, the previous owner of the inn was murdered. Um, and it's Glenn who as, his, as, as the previous owner's partner came and took over the inn. So Sydney and Glenn already have a close relationship. But what she didn't know, what the readers don't know, is that at one point Vincent Almada had needed a kidney and um, Glenn was a match for him and had donated his kidney. Now the two men, although they lived in the same town, have had no contact with each other since then. And there are a whole bunch of reasons for that, but mostly because um, this community really does have, like every community, strong divisions amongst its residents. We continue to have a large um, Portuguese population here because Provincetown many years ago was a Portuguese fishing village. So there's this Portuguese element that's been here for, for decades, for generations and generations and generations. And then there are people such as Glenn, um, such as Sydney, who have come here. They're called wash ashores more recently. And it, it, I, I don't think I can say there's any animosity between the two groups, but they just don't mix a lot. So it was that 
Lynn, who had donated the kidney to Vincent years ago, just didn't think about it anymore, whereas whoever kidnapped Vincent was thinking, okay, I'm going to use Glenn in this. Now, Glenn also is someone who's got a lot of resources um, in many different ways between, between owning this really fabulous inn um, and knowing everybody in the community. Um, so it seems to the kidnapper, who, of course, we're not going to reveal this conversation, but it seemed to the kidnapper that he would be a good go-between so that when the kidnapper asked for um, money or when the police wanted to see proof of life, Glenn would be the logical person to be a go-between. Now, of course, we've got Sydney also at the end where she's the wedding planner, and she is constantly wanting to get involved in all these little situations, partly because she's got a natural curiosity and partly because in the past she has been helpful in solving some crimes. So that was sort of a, a sort of backwards way, but a, 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 an interesting segue for me to have Sydney get involved because normally, of course, a wedding planner is not going to get involved in a kidnapping. <laughs> yeah, but that's why I like her because she's like me. Because if I want to get involved in something and I want to know something, watch out. I'm going to do this. <laughs> Definitely. Well, that's, that's the whole thing about having this sort of cozy mystery, isn't it, where you've got an amateur detective, you've got somebody who's not a professional, not with the yeah. police, not, you know, someone who just gets involved because they're interested. They have to be careful. They don't want to be dead after being interested, though. This so. is true. This is true. Yeah, we have the police chief. She's not happy. That Sydney is interfering. No, no. She's not thrilling at all. And what exactly <laughs> did Vincent do that they wanted to kill him? Poor Vincent. <laughs> well, I'd rather not say much about that because okay, that don't was pretty see. much reveal okay, who, who it yeah. is. But, um, yeah, that, that's probably going too far. But I do, I do want to mention Julie, who is the head of detectives. Um, at the Provincetown Police Department. And from the very beginning, um, she and Sydney have had this sort of interesting relationship because um, mm. in several of the previous books, Sydney has actually literally tripped over a dead body. Sydney is often oh, cool. the one on the spot first. Um, partly because of her work, partly because she's in an inn, partly because she has a lot of friends. And, um, and Julie, the, you know, the, the head of detectives, um, Detective Agassi, as her name, you know, um, more formally is, she's always saying, come on, you've got to leave this to the professionals, um, get out of here. And, of course, Sydney's always saying, yeah, but I can be helpful to you. So they've got this little dance they do, and I think that in their heart of hearts, they really do like each other. Um, I think that Sydney has identified Julie as a friend. Um, I don't know that Julie has ever identified Sydney as a friend, but they do this little dance between Sydney being helpful and Sydney getting in the way, and Julie wanting her help and Julie wanting her to get out of the way. 
Um, so all throughout the whole series and here in particular, you really see them doing this dance. And, and of course, they, they both get very sarcastic with each other. I mean, um, Sydney is, is, to me, the queen of snark. And Julie is kind of cutting and, um, and, and very, very business-like. So you've got mm. the two of them up against each other, and it makes for some interesting conversations. It sure does. So who is Morella, and who's Guy Husband, and what's what's your, what's her take on him? Okay. And what did so they think Mirella, that he was involved with Vincent? Poor, this poor guy. Um, poor Vincent. I feel so bad for him. Poor Vincent. Yeah. Poor Vincent sitting and being kidnapped there. Um. So. Mirela has been with Sydney from the first of the books. Um, she's Bulgarian. She's an, a visual artist. And traditionally, what has happened in Provincetown, and again, this is part of me wanting to give um, a, a, a true background, you know, to, to give you actual facts about the place as well. For many years, um, in the summertime, Bulgarian students have come to Provincetown to work, and they work hard. They're young. They work really like two or three jobs. Um, they make money, and they go back to school in the fall in Bulgaria. Um, and so what I have is Mirela came as one of those students, um, but found out when she, once she got here that Provincetown is indeed the oldest art colony in the United States that we are full of artists and galleries and people drawing and people painting. And she had been painting. Um, she was an art student when she came. And Provincetown fell in love with Mirella's work. And she decided to stay. She decided to make this her home. So she has been here as an artist, a very established artist now by this eighth book in the series. She has been here as an artist throughout all of these books, and she is Sydney's closest friend. Um, and, of course, Sydney has concerns about her. So in a previous book, not the last one, but the one before that, um, Guy Husband arrived in Provincetown. He's a Brit. He's very wealthy, and he ran a shipwreck salvage company. And... Um, and he and Mirella fell in love with each other while he was here. And he was here actually um, investigating a shipwreck, which is a whole different story, but mm. an, I think an interesting one in the book called um, A Fatal Folly. But he was here investigating the shipwreck, and Mirella and he fell in love with each other, and then he left, and he never got back to her. And, of course, Mirella went through, you know, trying to reach him, and he couldn't be reached. And so she went through all the grief. He never loved me in the first place, all the things that one does. And she had just kind of gotten to the point where, okay, you know, that didn't work. It's over. I'm not going to think about him anymore. When he comes back in this book. And so, of course, the first thing that Sydney is doing is trying to defend her friend. Don't you even mm. think of getting near Mirella if you're going to break her heart again? Um, well, it turns out he had a decent reason for not being around. He was in prison, um, and now he's here mm. because he is concerned about um, a, another take. He's, he's, he's gotten some um, information 
about another possibility for um, Vincent's kidnapping. And, in fact, I think I'm not giving too much away when I say Vincent no. was also then murdered. Um, and Guy, Guy Husband, um, and they always make a joke about it. That's his real name, Guy Husband. <laughs> um, he has... He has identified a, another possibility for the kidnapper and murderer, which is um, a group of, of um, I would say, a crime family um, that is that is part of the fishing community in New Bedford, um, New Bedford and Provincetown and other other Massachusetts fishing ports um, have huge rivalries and. There is a custom of New Bedford um, fishing rigs fishing in Provincetown waters, which they're not supposed to do. So there's all sorts of bad blood there. And Guy seems to think with his in, inside information that, um, that this, this, the, this, this crime family from New Bedford may indeed be involved in this. So this is he's trying to talk to, to Sydney first of all about I really want to see Mirella again. I really want to know yeah. what happened with her. And then, but he's also saying, but there's also this thing I've got to tell you about this, you know, this this possible connection um, with this fishing crew in in New Bedford. So he's got he's got a lot going on. Okay, now this father is great, and he reminds me of my father because if he wanted to go do something. It didn't matter. So he went to a restaurant. Why would no, no nobody wanted to go near the chef? I wouldn't go near her either. But how come he was <laughs> able to approach her and he had no problem? And the other thing that that you know brought memories is that my sister used to say her mother-in-law Helen, who I loved, um, used to say to her, "When you get upset, just breathe." And you know uh-huh, something? There are times I do that too. I just just breathe. It does help. Trust me, it does help. So why did her father want want this chef? I mean, nobody wanted to go near her. She was crazy, and yet he got went into the kitchen. He loved her. Why? I mean, seriously. Yeah. So I set I set up some characters early on in the series who I haven't done anything yet with, but I wanted to have them sort of. Um, waiting, yeah. you know, available so that I could develop them. And, in fact, um, one of my first readers keeps saying to me, when are you going to have the Adrienne, the chef, the center of one of the stories? And eventually yeah. I probably shall. Um, but I did set up this, this, this concept of having Adrienne, the diva chef, and we always say it like that, Adrienne, the diva chef, who um, works in the the restaurant that's attached to the inn that Glenn owns and that Sydney works at. And um, she's managed to get that restaurant a Michelin rating, which is pretty extraordinary for Cape Cod. Um, And so obviously everyone wants her to be happy. Well, on top of that, she has a temper um, and... um, we came close to, in one book, I think the first or the second book, we came close to sort of getting to know her a little because one of her knives was missing and someone had gotten um, knifed. So so I kind of flirted with the idea of dealing with Adrienne, and then I backed off and did something else with it. But I suspect that in a future book I will want to bring Adrienne in. But what I wanted to do with the father, so so, so 
so yeah, everyone's really terrified basically of Adrienne. And um and you know, Sydney's like, I never want to talk to her. I go through the major D, I don't talk to her because she's scary. She screams and has, you know, hissy fits and does the diva thing. Um, but what I wanted to do with Sydney's father was obviously I didn't want him to have this same relationship with Sydney that her mother did. I didn't want him to be that forceful. But I also didn't want him to be a total non-entity. So as I was making him into this really quiet person, you know, he's, he's not quite a yes dear kind of person, but he's, you know, verging on that. He wants a peaceful life. He's retired. You know, he wants to read his paper. He wants to just, you know, and he wants everybody to get along. Um, and I was, I was really developing that through a couple of the books when I realized that he was starting to feel like a non-entity, a non-person, just, you know, a caricature of a submissive husband kind of person. And I didn't like that because I thought that, that first of all, I don't like writing char- characters that become caricatures of themselves. But also, you know, I always feel like if I'm going to invent these characters, I owe them something, you know, I owe them a decent personality and a valuable life and, and, and a whole lot of things that, that we take for granted in, in real people. I really feel like I need to infuse all that into my characters. So I was thinking even before I wrote this book, what can I do with Sydney's father that will make him more interesting but not, you know, bring him up to the level of kind of attention competition with his wife, who's, who, you know, very much to the fore. So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if everyone in the world is terrified of Adrian but him, that he would have this, you know, inner strength that comes from, and, and this was new, I hadn't really brought this into his personality before, but that comes from him being a gourmet. Now, one of the things I have done throughout all the books, because I love food so much, is that I have given Sydney a real taste for food, and in particular, fine dining, which I can't afford, but she can manage. Um, and so, I, I, you know, if, if you read my books and, and you hear about a meal, you're not going to just hear that they ate a meal. You're going to hear what they ate and how good it was. So I thought, this is great. I'll give him the opportunity to be a real gourmet, to really not just enjoy but understand the subtleties in the dishes that Adrienne prepares. And she, in in turn, will honor him because he understands that, because he has that level of, of culinary sophistication that enables him to really appreciate her food in ways that some of the tourists might not. Um, so, so I thought of that just as I was starting this and thought, how can I set this up? And of course, you know, once I brought Sydney's parents to stay at the inn, of course her father is going to want to have reservations at a Michelin-rated restaurant. Of course she's going to pull strings to make sure he gets that reservation. And of course, he is going to have a conversation with the redutable Adrienne that everyone else is terrified of. Um, and it gives both of them a dimension. Um, it gives him that dimension of strength, 
and power that he doesn't really have through a forceful personality. But it's also feeding into Adrienne a little bit. It's easing a little bit that Adrienne the diva chef kind of thing. She's got this little bit of a human side because she's willing to have conversations with Sydney's father. So I'm hoping that that is going to set me up so that in the next couple of books, I can develop Adrienne so that she's not, again, a caricature of the diva chef, but she's a real breathing, interesting human being. She is, and if the mother won't like it, she might actually make a play for the father because she's so cute. (laughs) (laughs) Just my warped sense of humor here. What can I tell you? So she didn't want her parents to know what happened to Alexandria and what does she think happened to her. She doesn't want her parents to know the truth about what happened to her. So, yeah, that's not quite it. Um, What happened is that long ago when Sydney was eight years old, um, her older sister, who was 10 years older than she was, was kidnapped. Um, and there are a lot of layers to that. Um, and and, and that, that those layers become even more important when you consider that Sydney's boyfriend um, is, is in, in, engaged in law enforcement around human trafficking. Um, but her sister, all those years ago, was kidnapped, disappeared. No one ever knew what happened to her. So now here we are, present day. Um, Sydney's at the end. Glenn is at the end. The parents are staying coincidentally at the end at the same time that all this is happening. And when Sydney finds out that this person that you know, she doesn't know Vincent personally. Her parents don't know Vincent personally. However, just that very word, kidnap, to her brought back this whole backstory of Alexandra, the sister, who disappeared, um, who, who left one fine day um, to go to Boston and live and was kidnapped. And um, there was a problem with that kidnapping that I won't go into, but the assumption was made that she had been killed. So here Sydney is. She does not want her parents to have to relive that. She knows what incredible tension um, that brought about in her growing up years of having this, I mean, she she talks about her as a ghost, but having this emptiness, this empty place where a person should have been um, was so incredibly painful for her parents. You know, I mean, statistically, most, um, most marriages end when a child, no matter how old that child is, when a child dies, if the child is still, you know, within like 20 years, you know, people don't make it, marriages don't make it through that sort of thing. So somehow her parents have found, you know, the wherewithal um, the stability to stay together, but that doesn't mean that the family has not been haunted by this. So here we are now with this, you know, everyone talking kidnapping, 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 and Sydney's yeah. and first thought is to try to protect her parents and make sure they don't hear about it. And, of course, that's in vain, but it's what she tried to do. Well, now we have to talk about the poor guy that got killed. Oh, well, what can you do? Um, 
Marie. <laughs> She's a character. She shows up. What is her job, and how does she? How do we? He meet her, and then she doesn't really care about him, does she? Just takes just a funeral and wants to get out. And then we meet White number one, Clara. How did he meet her? I mean, he didn't have very much luck with life. Poor thing. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I I think that um, so Vincent was was indeed married twice. Um, his first wife um, they they divorced, and um, and she went to live actually in New Bedford, which connects back to that whole idea of that crime family that she may or may not be involved with. Um, and, and then he married Marie. And Marie is, is a very independent woman. She's actually a pilot with Cape Air Airlines, which is actually now a very large airline. It used to be just between Cape Cod and, and Boston, and now literally goes all over the world. But um, she's a pilot, so she's obviously a smart, competent, calm person. Um, and her marriage with, with Vincent was not was not everybody's idea of a marriage, but it worked yeah. for them. Um, he, you know, he would go, he was retired, even though he still owns the Dolphin Fleet, you know, he was retired from day-to-day work, and he would go in the morning to Cafe Maria and sit around with all the other old-timers and um, and Marie would go off and do her job, and that worked for them. But in fact, as it turns out, once he's murdered, he has left um, his his property, including the Dalton Fleet, to his first wife, who I think probably he did it because she was also Portuguese. Um, she was also enmeshed in, in, you know, the family kind of thing. And Marie, frankly, had absolutely no interest in running a business. She wanted to be a pilot. She was a pilot. She was doing what she wanted to do in life. Um, I did this because, first of all, what, one of the things you want to do in a mystery novel is introduce enough characters that you can have some red herrings. So if you have three new characters, uh, it's not going to take too long for you to figure out who the murderer is, right? Mm, so yep. you have to bring in a whole bunch of people and give them all maybe a little bit of a sliver of motive. Um, so so I thought, wow, if I could have these two wives and set up this, you know, I mean, we, we, we meet them with a screaming match in public between them. They're both passionate women. Um we, we meet them through a screaming match, and I'm thinking if we can set this up so that each of them could potentially maybe want Vincent dead, um, then that gives us, you know, even more of a, and, a, and a, I'm not going to tell you even if one of them killed him or not because I'd rather leave the killer a secret, but 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 what I'm doing in bringing in all these people, all these different people, including Guy Husband, you know, including the, the, the people from New Bedford, all of these people have some connection to this story. And not only do they provide possibilities for who the murderer could be, but they also provide, I think, texture. Um, they, they make yeah. it a richer story because they're bringing in their own stories. So before I forget, I don't want to forget, Tuesday, this is going to be outrageous. 
One of my favorite people, and I've met him quite a number of times because I went to the Solar Fest, Vincent Zendry is going to be here with Paradox Lake. He's really big. He's got like a million novels, but he's New York Times, and he's just the nicest person. On the 20th and the 24th, I have five authors doing a panel show. The first, yeah, right, right? And they're really interesting. They're really big authors, too, including Philip Margolin, John Land, Alan Jacobson, Stephen James, Dennis Palumbo. All, all the big ones are coming on those shows. And Phil is coming on tw- twice. Uh, the show on Wednesday next week is at 12 o'clock. And we're going to talk about villains, conflicts, and how you create your characters to want to kill each other and a lot more. On the 24th, we're going to talk with Alan Topol, Philip Margolin, and Sybil, uh, Dennis Palumbo, and a whole bunch more people. We're going to talk about how you use your career um, in, uh, in your work, including uh, Lance LaRusso, who's a detective in uh, Georgia. On the 26th, I'm not really sure if Minister Sam's going to do it. On the 2nd, Dick Belsky. R.G. Belsky is going to be here writing as Dana Perry, The Last Scoop. On the 3rd, this is really sad, on June 3rd, the author wrote The Day Before I Died. And I wrote a review, and I was really surprised that he asked for an interview, but I'm going to do it. On the 7th, New York Times author Don Bentley, who took over Target Acquired, he's going to do the Tom Clancy series. And finally, on the well, there's a lot more in there in June. On the 8th, John Gilstrap, Grimson Phoenix. So it gets great. And at the end of the month, on the 29th, Tess Gerenson and Gary Braver choose me. And there's a whole bunch more in between. What can I say? So that's just May and part of June. And July, like I said, I take off. So here we go. You sound very busy, Fran. I can't believe that I'm doing this for 12 years. I can't believe I'm doing it at all. And when the first author that I ever interviewed was Tess Gerenson. I emailed her myself. I said, okay, be brave. She has got to be the nicest person on this planet. And all the authors are really great, and I you know, appreciate it. Because I'm doing this because there's a pandemic, and people's work needs to be spotlighted. And I have to be very honest, Jeanette. If I didn't think a book was worth three and a half, four stars, I wouldn't do the interview. I'm serious. I only do, I I only do interviews with quality work, and I've turned down quite a number of interviews, and I've turned down quite a number of books recently because I won't read them. They're just not what I want to read. I don't like self-help people. Anyway, (laughs) when sparks fly in the hotel and the FBI is present, how do I know that the feds have no clue? They had no clue whatsoever. Yeah, and and I should probably apologize to the FBI for that, but but the thing is that the, the the problem you have when you're writing a cozy mystery and you've got an amateur detective, and then you end up having a lot of law enforcement present, professional law enforcement present. In real life, this wouldn't happen, because in real life, um, the the professional law enforcement people would take care of the situation. You know, you you sometimes hear about Mm -hmm. amateurs getting involved sort of, you know, with cold cases, because they discover something. But in general, um, if you can make a generalization, most most homicides are solved by people who do it for a living. 
Um, so we've got already this conceit where we where where we have a cozy mystery with an amateur detective, you know, an amateur sleuth, that you have to be able to give them a little bit of an edge so that they can, in fact, um, be the star of the show. Otherwise, you're going to write a story about the FBI. Now, I, I, I set this up with, with Provincetown Police as much as I could, as I mentioned, with her, you know, friendship with Julie. In Massachusetts, however, um, we, have, we have an interesting way of dealing with death is that um, local police do not um, investigate murders. Um, homicide is investigated essentially by the district attorney, but the state police are acting on behalf of the district attorney. So essentially, as anytime someone gets killed here in Provincetown, which by the way does not happen in real life, but I'm murdering people off right, left, and center. Um, it, essentially, if somebody gets killed here in Provincetown, you've initially got the Provincetown police taking a look at it, but the state police will soon be involved. I also mm. posited, however, that there would be federal involvement because there's a kidnapping. And kidnapping that might cross state lines is a federal offense. So we've got essentially three groups of law enforcement here. And um, so Sydney's got, a, even though she's got sort of an in because she knows all these people involved and she can ask the right questions of the right people, um, she still has a fair amount of very professional competition in terms of solving this crime. So what I needed to do was really bring her local knowledge to the fore um, to shine, you know, a light on her that shows her as a person who reasonably could solve this and make sure that the federal people, um, the people from outside, so to speak, sort of remain outside. And interestingly, I had, at one point, I had a, a different subplot that was going to involve the FBI agents, but um, it became a little bit too complicated and wasn't working. So I sort of left them, as I just said, I don't do caricatures, but sometimes you have to do something that's close to a caricature because you don't have the time and space to fully flesh out everybody. So I have them... I wouldn't say they were totally inept, but they are not able to grasp some of the subtleties um, that someone who is local would be able to grasp in this particular crime. Well, we have to bring this guy in, otherwise I would be really bad. Allie is her boyfriend. Allie is her boyfriend, yes. I like him. So, So will she ever make it permanent? I mean, what's her problem over here? Well, Seriously. I think Sydney's problem is that she did she did have another marriage that ended in divorce, and I think yeah. she has a problem with that. But Ali is Ali is indeed very special. I like him a lot. Also, she Me met too. him in the first she met him in the first book in the series. Um, he um, he he does extraordinary work. But the fact is. The work that he does, it's not the kind of thing you can call in. You know, we can't do a Zoom um, for law enforcement. So um, he is unable to live in Provincetown, although he comes here as frequently as possible, obviously, to visit Sydney. His home base is in Boston, but he also does a lot of traveling because he is involved in, um, in fighting human trafficking. And um, so he's got... 
he's an interesting character in that he's got um, this sort of, you know, brave um, job that, that, that is doing good in the world, but he's conflicted for a couple of things, you know, and mostly because Sydney has shown no indication that she ever wants to leave Provincetown. Um, like a lot of people, so many of the what they call wash ashores, the, the people from somewhere else who come here, just are become very committed to this little town. Um, it is beautiful. It is um, it is so many things to so many people. And I think Sydney has really found herself here and so is not ready to make the commitment to leave here. Ali is also Muslim. His parents are Lebanese. And um, so that hopefully, you know, again, I was trying to early on set up some possibilities for conflict or problems or challenges or just items of interest along the way. Um, her mother, Sidney's mother, has had some issues around him being Muslim, although, again, in this book, this is the book where I really brought um, the mother and the boyfriend together because up until now, she's been sort of like, mm. oh, him, oh, that man kind of thing, even though Sydney's been seeing him for several years. Um, and in this book, he is the one who decides to go out on his own and investigate what could have happened to the missing daughter, to the sister, to Alexandra. Yeah, I know. And he goes out and investigates this, and that um, just brings the mother right back to him to realize you know, I've been wrong. I've been making assumptions about this guy. Um, you know, he is, he, is, he is really not the person I thought he was. And, in fact, I didn't really think of him much as a person at all. Now I do. So I really did I didn't want, you know, we've had eight. This is the eighth book in the series. So we've had seven books in this series where Sydney's mother um, has been sort of anti-Ali, and now I know that going forward, although I'm sure that Sydney and her mother will continue to have issues together, the mother is no longer going to be um, so so rigorous in not liking Ali. I think that she's going to um, develop a friendship with him, and, and I think that's going to be good. As for whether they're going to get married, I don't know. It, it really is the kind of conflict that we see in real life where you've got yeah. two very different professions that are, are mutually exclusive in a way. Um, although Sydney, Sydney isn't specifically a profession, she could be a wedding planner anywhere, but she's very, very tied to this community, whereas he cannot be tied to this community. So I don't know. At one point early on in the series, I thought about killing him off, and then I heard so much from from readers that that would be a bad idea. <laughs> so I'm not sure. I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure where this is going, but it will be interesting to see. The way that I write, I tend to let the characters take over. I, I am not good at, at, at outlining because the characters have their own conversations and they, they have their own thoughts. And before long, you're going in a different direction than you thought you were going. So I really do, you know, I trust my characters. I make them as real and fleshed out and three-dimensional as I can, and then I listen to them. And so I'm hoping and trusting that at some point in the next book or the one after that, 
that Sydney and Ali are going to let me know where that's going to go. Which is why I write from the point of view of the dead body behind the stone and they are dead before they even start so they don't have to speak. Actually, they speak out and tell what they did wrong. I'm serious. Or they speak out because somebody, they were wronged. It's my Faces Behind the Stone series, and my book, uh, Population Zero, will be out June 26th. And it's Population Zero, a world without people. And I created nine worlds, and then I invited a dead spirit to come back and experience my world to tell people that maybe they better start appreciating the one that we're in, and maybe someday we'll be able to walk out without the, the mask on our face. It's, it's it's scary. A lot of people are reading it. I've got mixed reviews. Every, no one said it was bad. They just said, oh, my God, how did you write that? I, I really don't know. I just sat down and wrote it. So before we end, um, this, 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 the only thing that I would hope you do the next time seriously, you've got to put some pictures of whales and sharks in the book or on the cover <laughs> or something. I said, where's my pic? The, the cover is fantastic. It's very soothing. It's beautiful. It sort of sets where the book takes place. But I was looking for a picture of this of the um, white sharks and the whales and all of them because that's my favorite thing. So right. what, in the next book, what's next for you? When is that happening? So um, we've got the next book scheduled to come out this fall, probably in late October. Um, oh, good. And... And yeah, we, we, we've been doing um, two books a year, so it's it's pretty <laughs> it's pretty intense. But um, yeah, in the next one, I'm I'm really hoping to see um, something. I, I've been I've been trying to you know, as I said, give give different lives to to the people who are the regular characters. And I am really thinking that it's time for um, Adrienne, the the diva chef to have a little bit more of a life than just screaming in the kitchen. So um, I'm hoping to involve her and some culinary um, escapades in some way. That sounds interesting. Well, are you going to do, I have to ask this, Cheryl, because Cheryl's going to want to know. Are you going to do, when the book comes out, you have to let me know way in advance so that I make sure I put you in my schedule. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I felt so bad. They asked me to do an interview with somebody that's doing something in July, and I just gave her a date in September. I hate to tell her she's got the last date in September. The next one is October. I'm serious. And in October, I have D.P. Lyle, and in um, November, I have Mac Hoyle. I have all these people, and thank God they told me months before. Otherwise, I'd never get a chance to do it. So if you decide right. to do a tour with Cheryl... I'm doing one, by the way, in August, everybody. The month of August, Fran's doing it, I'm braving it, and we'll see what everybody thinks. You know, sometimes you get people that are really negative, and sometimes you don't. And there's one particular uh, reviewer that's always negative, so whatever. I, I learned to ignore, yeah. you know, because mm-hmm. she, she says she doesn't understand what I wrote. I go, well, then try taking some. I'm a reading specialist in writing. I, I didn't want to say to her, take some comprehension skills, but what can I say? So where can we find out more about you and your work? And I hope I get the book before you before it comes out. I will certainly put you on the first reader's list, yes. Um, oh, so yes, you can definitely. Find me mostly at my website, which is JeanetteDeBeauvoir.com, and it's Jeanette with two N's. So just look up JeanetteDeBeauvoir.com. I'm also at Homeport Press, which is my current publisher. 
Um, and obviously on Amazon, you can see the whole series um, on Amazon or on Goodreads. Well, I have handouts for your book, too. There are a lot of people. I live in a building that's very, very different, and nobody really talks to anybody except me Uh, because I'm constantly walking in the hall and go, you have anything good to read? You have any reading material? And they all know for some reason what I do. And the porters in my building um, come from foreign countries overseas, and they don't have libraries and books there. So mm-hmm. once a month I give I give one to one, and then the other one just came back from vacation, and I'm looking at my tub over here of another 30 books to give to him to send to his country. I think he's in Ghana or Honduras, wherever, and they send them there, and the people appreciate that because they don't have the, the ability to get books. So it makes me feel right. good at least. All of your books are going somewhere. Somebody's going to read them. But I want to thank you so much. This has been fun. It's enlightening, let me tell you. And it made my day so much better, (laughs) considering. And your book is great. I hope I can't wait to get the next one because I want to see what happens with Sydney. And I want to get to know her better. And I love whales and sharks. So, everybody, I say this before the end of every one of my shows because this pandemic's really gotten to me. And I haven't seen my family in two years because of it. Just one small ask, when you go outside, please wear a mask and stay safe and be careful. Jeanette, thank you so much. Everybody have a great day and bye.